0: Welcome to the last session before lunch and the best one of the morning. My name is James Crabtree. I run the International Institute for Strategic Studies here in Singapore and it's my great pleasure to be acting as the fireside moderator for my uh, good friend and former boss, Kishore Mabubani. Uh, Kishore, um, I'm sure many of you will know, is a multiply published author, uh, one of Singapore's leading public intellectuals um, and he also used to be the Dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and was kind enough to give me a job there, so I have to ask him nice questions. Um, let's start, we're going to do half an hour before lunch, um, a brief canter through the current geopolitical scene. Um, Kishore, you just came back from Bali where you were at the G20 meeting, or the run-up to the G20 meeting. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what you learned when you were there, but maybe we start with the obvious question about the meeting yesterday between Xi and Biden. It seems to have been reasonably constructive. Um, where do you think that leaves ties between the United States and China?
1: Yeah, well, thank, thank you, James, for that very warm uh, welcome But on the Xi-Biden meeting, the result has been rather paradoxical because on the one hand, everything changed in U.S.-China relations and on the other hand, nothing changed in U.S.-China relations. And let me explain what I mean by this uh, paradox. On the one hand, everything changed Because for us now, finally, after two years of the Biden administration, you're having a civilized dialogue between the United States and China. And they can talk and communicate with one another. You remember how Alaska started, how they shouted at each other, they exchanged insults, and they just couldn't even have a proper conversation. And in all these years, even though Blinken and Jake Sullivan have met their counterparts, there's been no real communication. But I think after the Xi-Biden meeting, you, you're now going to get real communication. And I suspect we've also helped to uh, moderate some of the most dangerous points in the U.S.-China relationship, which, of course, is the Taiwan issue. And I think President Biden's uh, reaffirmation that China, the U.S. hasn't changed its one-China policy is very, very important, that kind of direct assurance. So that's how everything has changed. But at the same time, I I also say that nothing has changed because actually the U.S. campaign to bring down China and to stop China's rise is not going to decrease in the next 10 years. It's going to increase. So even though they had a very nice, friendly meeting, The fundamental goal of the United States to stop China from becoming number one is not going to diminish in any way. And as you saw this, of course, with the CHIPS Act that has just come, but there will be more and more measures that the United States will take to try and slow down China's economic growth. So that will also continue.
0: That's what I mean by saying nothing has changed. So if you're sitting in a room like this or a conference like this and you're looking to put money to work in Asia and you're slightly worried about the the way in which geopolitics might affect this, thinking about the ruptures after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and it sounds like you're saying expect more of this in future, don't be fooled by the, the positive tone of the Bali meeting really it's more likely that we're going to see more U.S.-China tension and potentially more crises between the two powers. Is that a fair assumption?
1: Uh, I think you will definitely see more tension, more competition between the two. But, you know, geopolitical contests uh, provide dangers, but they also provide opportunities. And so for, for Southeast Asia, for example, uh, ASEAN, as you know, has gone through various phases of being loved and snubbed by the great powers. (laughs) During the Cold War, everybody fell in love with ASEAN. After the end of the Cold War, people said ASEAN didn't matter. Now ASEAN matters again. And so the courtship of ASEAN by various powers will increase uh, in the next 10 years, and that will provide, I think, significant growth opportunities uh, for, for the ASEAN countries. Certainly China will come, uh, and do more uh, with the region. As you know, China's... If you look just at this one simple statistic, in the year 2000, United States trade with ASEAN was $135 billion, more than three times China's trade of $40 billion. Today, United States trade has gone up two and a half times to about $300 plus billion, but China's trade with ASEAN has gone to over $800 an increase of 20 times in 20 years. So with that... That is an example of how you will see uh, greater opportunities uh, coming this way. So in terms of economic growth and development, particularly with the takeoff of the regional comprehensive economic partnership, I've actually
0: become more bullish about the prospects for the regional economy in East Asia. So... um For those of you who haven't read them, Kishore has written two recent books, one, The Rise of the Asian Century, a collection of essays, another uh, which is called Has China Won, provocatively, which came out last year or the year before. Um, So we can talk about that in a minute, but just to stay on the, the sort of the question of Taiwan, it's an obvious question to ask, but... What is the outlook there? Um, If if you are looking at it from the United States, you're worried that China is going to invade. If you're looking at it from China, you're worried that the US is going to uh, try and push Taiwan towards independence. What's the outlook? What do you think will happen over the next couple of years? Well, I think Taiwan will always
1: remain very dangerous. And it's very clear that there's one thing that could cause a war between the United States and China. It is Taiwan. Because if Taiwan declares independence, China will declare war. That's 100% certainty. And for a while, I mean, especially after the Pelosi visit, there was some fears, I think, in Beijing that the US was trying to push uh, China towards uh, independence. But I think the recent visit, meeting between Xi and Biden, the one thing it has done is brought the temperature down uh, on Taiwan. And it's very significant, by the way. That both sides said that there'll be no nuclear war, and then you 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 do your calculations. If you have a conventional war over Taiwan, who's in a better position? Who's nearer? Who's further? And so I think, in that sense, I suspect that the Taiwan issue there'll be a calming uh, process because i suspect that the biden administration did all their calculations and came to the conclusion a war over taiwan would be just too painful too dangerous let's just calm that issue down and instead instead of using taiwan as a way of uh, as a foil against china they're now going to use technology as a foil against china and you saw that in the chips act you'll see i predict with some certainty various other advanced technologies that the United States has, the taps will be shut one by one.
0: And that's, that's They've decided that that's the way to slow China down. And I suppose that has significant implications for this region and investment in the region. Um, let me take you back to your travels because Kishore is a very well-traveled man um, and he's been on um, some interesting adventures recently. So let's stick with Bali for the moment. Um, so you met uh, Indonesia's President Jokowi. Uh, Indonesian Foreign Minister Retno, uh, what, what did you glean from talking to the leadership in Southeast Asia about how they are viewing not just US-China, but also if we introduce the, the third leg of the triangle, namely Russia, and the way in which Indonesia had to cope with the fact that the, the three big powers are in different ways um, in, in a sort of bad state with one another? Well, I mean,
1: I, I, I was very fortunate. I had breakfast with President Joko v on Wednesday. I uh, had um, lunch with the Indo- Indonesian foreign minister on Tuesday. And I also actually had lunch with uh, Minister Luhut, uh, who, as you know, is one of the heavyweight ministers in the Indonesian government. I think as far as Indonesia was concerned last week, what they wanted to avoid was a disastrous outcome. For the G20 meeting. And in fact, frankly, logically, the G20 meeting that is just finishing should have failed, you know. Should have failed. There should have been walkouts. There should have been angry statements. Instead, as you know, there was a, actually overall a relatively positive meeting between Xi and Biden. No fireworks uh, at the G20 meeting. And just to give you a small example, huh? When President Xi and Prime Minister Modi of India met recently a few weeks ago at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting in Samarkand, they didn't even shake hands. You know, there was a certain coolness. But in Bali, they shook hands. So I think what the Indonesians are really good at doing is creating the right atmosphere for positive outcomes. And the Indonesians, I can tell you, had very frank exchanges with the European delegates. And they told the European delegates, yes, we know you're going to criticize Russia. That's a given. You have to you have to criticize Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. But please, no walkouts. Those walkouts are insult to the host. Stay in the meeting and participate uh, in the dialogue. So you can see how they thought uh, uh very hard about that and also uh president jokowi told me he said i think that president xi and joe biden will have a good meeting because i gave them the nicest room in bali for the meeting <laughs> <laughs> and he chose a room with a very nice view and, and everything you know so you, can, you you can see therefore that uh, the indonesians paid a lot of care and attention to ensuring that the G20 meeting in, in, in Indonesia will go down. It's one of the most successful G20 meetings. So at a, at a time when the G20's fortunes were going down, Indonesia helped to turn
0: it around a bit. That's a, a, a nice positive uh, take, I think. Um, I want to come back to Russia, but you had one other trip recently. As I say, Kishore is uh, often to be found in different parts of the globe. So you were in Paris, where you met uh, President Macron. Um, so, you mentioned the role that the Europeans have played in Bali and the radicalization of mainstream European opinion with respect to Ukraine and Russia. What did you learn in Paris about where Europe stands on this?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I was very. It's, a very, it's very unusual for me to spend one week with two presidents. <laughs> Wednesday, breakfast with President Jokowi, Friday, dinner with President Macron. And, a, and, a, and, I, and I, I must say, President Macron was very nice to me. He said that when he was a young man, his assignment was to translate my essays into French. So he knew my work. Uh, And I think that's why he invited me. But he, his focus clearly is on the global multilateral picture. Uh, And I think President Macron knows this is his second term. He's not going to be re-elected. I'm sure he's thinking a bit about his legacy, what is the legacy he's going to leave behind. And I know he genuinely believes in multilateralism. So he wants to, in a sense, uh, strengthen global multilateral institutions. But I can tell you in the panel discussion, what really surprised me was that the President Macron invited the President of Argentina, the President of Guinea-Bissau, the Prime Minister of Albania and the head of World Food Program, the head of International Crisis Group, and a young uh, uh, UAE uh, novelist who's 26 years old. And what was stunning is that the heads of government, when they spoke, they all criticized Western policy on Ukraine. And I was stunned. I said, wow, he's President Macron is not bringing in people who is going to support what europe is doing on russia and ukraine in fact the president of argentina was very categorical he said this war in ukraine is not just hurting the people of ukraine yes the people of ukraine are dying we feel their pain but the global poor the global south is also suffering so please stop the war right let's have negotiations and and and, and that is not as you know that's not the dominant view in europe at all in the view in europe is to Carry on with the war. So this tension in a world between a world where, if you add up the population of all the countries that have imposed sanctions on Russia, it comes to 15 percent of the world's population. 85 percent of the world's population has not imposed sanctions on uh, Russia. So that means that there is that tension that will develop between what Europe wants to see as the outcome. And what the rest of the world uh, wants to see is the outcome. And that was what, to my surprise, surfaced very clearly at the
0: Paris Peace Forum. Do you think that's, I mean, it's a challenging point if I imagine many people in the audience here are um, from Europe or North America where there is a consensus that Russia's in the wrong, the Ukraine course is a noble one, and the best way to uh, end this war is for Ukraine to win it decisively and to sort of put Russia back in its box. Um, your sense is that if you look across the sweep of of Asia, Africa, Latin America, the, the global south, as some call it, that that is a view that most people disagree with?
1: Yeah, I would say the, the, the view of the global south is very, very clear. And, and, and actually, the person who's articulated it very well, as you know, is the foreign minister of India, Dr. Jay Shankar. And Dr. Jay Shankar said, very after visiting Europe, he says, the problem in our world is that Europe thinks that Europe's problems are the world's problems. And the world's problems are not Europe's problems. So, and I think the, there's a sense that Europe and certainly the West are not paying enough attention, uh, to the impact of the war, uh, on the rest of the world. And I think if I, if I was a European strategic planner, I would worry about the fact that this might become too much of a issue, not between in a sense, the rules-based order and Russia on the one hand, but instead just the West and the Russia and the rest of the world saying, let's try to end this. And I don't know whether you saw this. Uh, Henry Kissinger just gave an interview where he said that what the world needs to do is have a larger conceptual, uh, theoretical uh, dialogue, both with China and with Russia. And actually, I also met Henry Kissinger, I think in mid-October, in New York, one-on-one. And in private, he basically said exactly what he said in public, which is that to to deal with the issues of Russia and to deal with the issues of China, it's not about focusing on the one or two, whether the issue is Taiwan, whether the issue is South China Sea, whether the issue is technology. It's about what is a bigger conceptual picture in which you're going to place Russia's long-term role in the world, China's long-term role in the world, and how do you create a world order that in a sense is able to accommodate these powers in such a way that it's, it's a plus for them and frankly a plus for the rest of the world. And, and, and I think that, I mean that's also the big message of my book as China won. The world has got to be
0: restructured to accommodate the rise of China. Just keeping on Russia briefly, so we had the events of this morning, which many in the audience will have looked at. So um, a stray missile fell in a Polish border town uh, two hours north of Lviv and a, a few miles from the Ukrainian border. It's not yet clear whether this was a Russian uh, missile, or it was a Russian-made missile, but whether it was fired by the Russians or the Ukrainians. Um, but let's imagine that we discover in the coming uh, day that it probably was a Russian missile, which seems like the most likely outcome. Uh, do you have a sense of how NATO might respond to this? Um, the G7 uh, ministers were meeting today in Bali. Um, what, what will be the, the result of, of, a, of a moment in which there have, has been an, albeit probably accidental, strike against a NATO member?
1: Mm. Well, I think you're right, it's probably an uh, accidental strike. I mean, I actually spent uh, some time in Germany or so, uh, actually in September. And what struck me is uh, there's a very strong sense of European unity against this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And and actually, uh, it struck me that uh, there's a new sense of solidarity in Europe that has emerged after the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. So certainly the the European response to this Russian even Russian accident would be very negative. But at the same time there's also a very clear understanding in Europe that it'll be a big mistake if you send European soldiers in to fight Russian soldiers. I think that's something that I think they they, they want. They, they will help Ukraine and they've been very generous with their assistance of Ukraine, but I don't think they will send in their soldiers to try and go uh, fight uh, uh, with Russia. So I think that's what they will hold back. We have to basically see, I mean, I kept asking several people in Europe, what, what do you see as the outcome in Ukraine? How is it going to end? I mean, at some point it's going to end. And the general sense I got is that nothing is going to happen till this winter is over. I think both sides are trying to see how this winter will affect Russia and Europe and, and Ukraine. And probably by early next year, if possible, then you might have some indications of how this will play out. But as of now, uh, clearly the Ukrainians believe that they are winning. And, and the Ukrainian soldiers have been remarkably brave and capable, I must say. They, they really fought an amazing uh, war and they've outperformed against everybody's uh, expectations. And you have to acknowledge that. And therefore, you can understand why the Ukrainians don't want to in any way uh, compromise now. So we have
0: to wait and see, wait a few months to see the outcome. Very good. We've got about 10 minutes to go, so I'm going to ask a few more questions before we break for lunch. Um, You you mentioned the countries that had introduced sanctions against Ukraine, and I suppose I should point out that one of those is our home uh, city of Singapore. Mm. Um, I, I suppose I... Without being too provocative, I should ask, what did you think of the decision of the Singapore government to join the predominantly Western nations that introduced sanctions and what has been the reaction to that move here in Singapore?
1: Well, I would say, uh, you know, the the, the non-aligned movement has got, I forget, 150, 160 members Uh, and Singapore is the only member of the non-aligned movement uh, to have imposed uh, sanctions on Russia. So it's obviously a very uh, brave decision uh, on the part of Singapore to stand out and say that we will take a uh, uh, position of principle. And, and uh, I think so far it's been uh, well received uh, uh, by the people. But at the same time, I think it's also clear that Singapore wants to see a solution uh, to this uh, Ukraine war because the... It's clearly destabilizing, not just Europe, it's destabilizing uh, the whole world. And, 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 and so if, if there are moves towards a solution, I think Singapore will support it.
0: Um, tell me a little bit more about, um, again, for an audience like this, we're interested in investment and investment opportunities. Um, you have mentioned technology and technology bifurcation in the aftermath of the U.S. Commerce Department, October 7th, um, semiconductor regulations. Um, What is your outlook on the economic picture for this region in Asia? Are we heading inexorably for a a divided Asia in which you have a a Chinese system on the one hand and then a a like-minded system that links up the United States and Japan and the Republican Korea and Australia? And and what would that mean for Southeast Asia caught in the middle?
1: Well, I think it it is... um it's very early in the game. Uh, we have to wait and see what other uh, technology measures the United States is going to carry out uh, against China. There will, I know for sure there will be more. But at the same time, I think the United States will find it very difficult to decouple from China because they will find with China getting more integrated uh, with not just East Asia, with the rest of the world, A decoupling between U.S. and China may mean a decoupling between U.S. and the world. And I can tell you, just um, uh, two nights ago, I was on a panel with the foreign minister of South Africa and the former foreign minister of Brazil, Celso Amorin. Uh, And Celso Amorin, as you know, is a supporter of President Lula. And Celso Amorin said, listen, I mean, look at the amount of trade that Brazil does with United States, right? Brazil's trade with China, I think, is three times Uh, Brazil's trade with uh um, uh, United States. It's trade with China, three times the trade with United States. And, you know, 20 years ago, it took Brazil one year to export $1 billion to China. Now it takes Brazil 72 hours to export $1 billion to China. So they, and, 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 and he, he. it's also what said said, if you look at Argentina and the other states, they're all, China is a much bigger act, uh, trader for them. So therefore, the integration within China and the rest of the world, I actually predict will gain pace as soon as the COVID-19, zero COVID policy is lifted. I predict that it'll be lifted slowly, gradually, step by step in the next six to 12 months. But once China lifts its zero-COVID policy, China's trade with the rest of the world is going to bounce back significantly. And as the United States tries to decouple with China, it suddenly finds, hey, this is a problem. Uh, China is so integrated with the rest of the world, how do I decouple, avoid decoupling uh, from the rest of the world? So this is why I think, you know, as you know, Singapore is a very good friend of the United States. And we want the United States to do well. We want the United States to stay on in this region. But we want the United States to also acknowledge there are some realities in this region. And one of the realities in Southeast Asia and East Asia is don't ask any country in this region to choose within China and choose within the United States because nobody wants to choose. And therefore, when the United States carries out its actions like decoupling, it's got to really figure out what is the long-term strategic game plan. And the Chinese, I know, have a long-term strategic game plan. But the United States is still very
0: unclear what that long-term strategic game plan is. Let me ask you a couple of questions to close. So firstly, on China, um, many in the audience will have uh, been watching carefully the events of the National Party Congress, which happened a few weeks ago uh, in the the biased Western media. The general view was that this was a hardline shift, um, that those who were put on the Standing Committee uh, were loyalists to Xi rather than those who were more associated with different parts of the Chinese political ecosystem or who were seen to be economic reformers, um, and that therefore we can expect China under the third term of President Xi to move in a particular direction. You, um, certainly compared to the prevailing narrative in the West, have been uh, a, a sympathetic um, observer or critic of, of China in your books. So, what, what's your outlook for what we can expect yeah. from uh, from Xi's third term? Yeah,
1: no, you're you're, you're absolutely right. There's a rock-solid consensus. I would say more in the Anglo-Saxon media than the Western media, because when I go to Germany, I find the German view is a bit more nuanced. I mean, you saw the fact that the fact that Chancellor Scholz just went to. Uh, China against the explicit lobbying of Washington, D.C., in fact, against the lobbying by some of his European counterparts, he went to China. So I think the German position on China is different in in some ways. So I would say it's the Anglo-Saxon media that has reached a very clear consensus that President Xi Jinping has made a huge mistake, he's accumulated too much power for himself, and instead of appointing competent, pragmatic uh, ministers or uh, officials, he's now appointed loyalists, and these loyalists cannot say no to Xi Jinping, and therefore the China growth story is over. I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's that's a story. So, and i, I be, yeah, you're right, I hold a different point of view. Uh, I actually believe that President Xi realizes that the next 10 years of China's history will go down as among the most decisive 10 years of China's history ever. Because he knows that in the next 10 years, the United States will try to do its best to slow down China, and he's going to make sure that the slowdown doesn't succeed, and that China keeps growing. And how does China keep growing? It has to open up to the world. If China closes itself, the growth story is over. If China wants an economy to open, it's, it's grow it's got to open it up. And so I predict that it is right that he's surrounded by loyalists, but it is also probable that he's surrounded by competent loyalists. And just to give you an example, the number two guy, Li Chiang, he was, as you all know, party secretary of uh, Shanghai. Uh, there are three things you ought to know about him. The hometown that he comes from is one of China's most entrepreneurial hometowns. Number two, he's the one who helped uh, Jack Ma and Alibaba when he was party secretary. Number three, he's the guy who negotiated with Elon Musk, the Tesla uh, uh, manufacturing plant in Shanghai. So the business people who know Li Chiang know that he's pro-business and not uh, an ideological party hack, uh, which is what the impression that is given uh, in the Anglo-Saxon media, so we, we live in a very interesting world because it's very clear what the Anglo-Saxon media is saying, and, and, and of course, you know, it may be proven right, but and I, but I believe that that view is wrong, and that it come next year as China li- lifts its zero COVID. The, actually, the biggest dampener on China's growth today is the zero COVID policy because it, it, they can't open up the country
0: yet. But once they lift that, you'll see a bounce back that will be significant. Very good. Well, a note note of optimism on which to end. We've talked about the G20, Biden and Xi, Xi's outlook, uh, Russia, the war in Ukraine, and much else besides. It's always a pleasure. Um, You can get Kishore's uh, most recent book, The Rise of the Asian Century, and the one before that, which is called Has China Won uh, in any good bookshop or online. And I'd invite you to give Kishore uh, a a warm round of applause and enjoy lunch. Thank you very much.